So technically, I majored in college and business and music, but I think I really majored in secrecy. It entered into a season of just living the weirdest double life, Eric. I realized that I really am as sick as my secrets. And I realized how good it was to not have any secrets anymore. God, it looks like you're opening a door. I'm going to step through it. <laughs> and Eric, that group changed my life. <laughs> that was where I learned to be honest. Quote, the man who can keep a secret may be wise, but he is not half as wise as the man with no secrets to keep. Edgar Watson Howell. If you want to keep a secret, you must also hide it from yourself. George Orwell. There are some secrets that we think that we are keeping, but those secrets are actually keeping us. Frank Warren. Have you ever kept a secret? And I'm not talking about a surprise birthday party. I'm talking about a secret that bothers you, eats at you, poisons you. Maybe it's a secret sin or maybe it's a secret pain that happened to you long ago. In recovery language, we say that you're only as sick as your secrets. Could it be that these secrets are keeping you stuck? Keeping you from peace, joy, and contentment? Keeping you from closeness with God? Does exposing these kind of secrets bring healing and restoration to our lives? These are some of the questions that I want to ask our guest today as he shares his life change story with us. I'm Eric Hutchinson, and this is the If Nothing Changes podcast. So, hey, friend, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us who you are? Thanks, Eric. Uh, hey, all. My name is uh, Andy Petrie. Uh, I am a grateful believer in Jesus. I struggle with anxiety and depression and sexual addiction, and uh, I've, I've been here in Northwest Arkansas for nine years now, and I uh, have the privilege of being able to serve as the ministry leader for Celebrate Recovery down at Fellowship Fayetteville. Well, Andy, welcome. I'm so glad that you agreed to be on my podcast. I love, love you so much, brother, and of course, we have developed a friendship over the years, so welcome. The listeners don't know you very well. Why don't you tell us where you're from, where you were born, tell us a little bit about your family, how many siblings you have, your mom and dad. So yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I, uh, I'm actually not from Northwest Arkansas. I grew up about 45 miles South of St. Louis in a little town called Cedar Hill, Missouri. Uh, if you know where Six Flags St. Louis is, it's like 20 miles from there. And so, uh, that's, that's where I grew up and that's where basically all of my family is. I'm the middle child of three brothers. Uh, a little bit of background with, with my family. I love my family dearly. Uh, you know, but one of the things that my my parents came out of that they that they raised our family out of was their own past, and so both of my grandfathers, both of my parents' fathers, uh, were uh, alcoholics that would occasionally uh, turn abusive, and so my my parents saw a lot of things and endured a lot of things growing up, and whenever they got married, they wanted to do everything they could to make sure that me. And my brothers didn't experience what they did growing up. And I'm really, really grateful for my parents that that strand of alcoholism and our families, uh, that ended with them, which is really, really cool and was such a great example for me and my brothers. I uh, loved my parents. We grew up in a Christian home in there. I found Jesus when I was seven or eight years old at an Easter Passion play at a Pentecostal church uh, and uh 
I really loved my family growing up. Me and my brothers, uh, I wouldn't say we totally got along with each other. In fact, I would I would say I I really did not have a good relationship, particularly with my older brother. So it sounds like that you were pretty close to your mom and dad, and it sounds like that yeah. uh, you know you you had a typical relationship with brothers because brothers a lot of times, especially closer <laughs> they are yeah. in age. So you mentioned your brother, your older older brother. Yeah. So was there a little bit of maybe you're living in his shadow, or what was it that caused some of the conflict there? I don't know if defective is the right word, but it's the word that comes to mind and just feeling like I fell short. And what I saw in my older brother, uh, I, I've looked up to my older brother my entire life. Uh, and when I was a kid, I saw somebody that was smart and athletic and likable. And I always saw myself as this slow, stupid, chubby kid. And so my brother, uh, even though I looked up to him, there was resentment that developed in me. That relationship that I had with my older brother and that insecurity that I felt, it actually was something that developed in nearly every one of my relationships that I had growing up. Hmm, that's interesting. So whenever you were in school, did that also play into your friendships and even your relationships with girls and that kind of thing? Did oh, all- Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, like I said, growing up, I, I always felt like there was something wrong with me. And, you know, I think looking back at my family dynamic, you know, I mentioned my my parents really wanted to make sure the 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 thing that we needed to do to win in my family was behave well and do well at school. And uh, I knew very early on that uh, it seemed like the goal that I took in from the conversations with my parents was that my job was to do well in school, go to college, get a degree, and make more money than dad did. It developed this sense of people-pleasing and codependency and perfectionism even early, early on in elementary school. And so that thread also went through into my friendships as well. And so I lived with a sense of trying to find my worth in what I could give others. And so rejection was a really hard thing for me. And to your question about what did that look like in like romantic relationships growing up? Well, I was, uh, I was never super, uh, liked by, uh, by the girls growing up. And so there was a lot of rejection growing up as I had crushes in elementary school and high school and stuff. And so there was this trend of, I need to make people happy. My worth is in what I do. And yet I feel like uh, there's a lot of evidence that says I'm unlovable. Growing up with those insecurities and feeling like I need to I need to do and say and be certain things, anytime I felt like I wasn't like that, my MO was I need to hide it. And so I can remember getting in trouble in school and tearing up the report so that I didn't have to tell my parents. Hmm. I can remember feeling like... Uh, I'm not getting good grades, and so I don't want to tell my parents about that. When I was uh, seven or eight, I can't, I can't remember. I think I was eight. Uh, I was over at one of my uncle's house uh, for the summer, and uh, that was where I got exposed to pornography mm. for the first time. He, Looking back, it, I can tell that he definitely had a sexual addiction of his own, and that was, that was something that he exposed me to. And, uh, so 
I had really my very first sexualized experience. And the message that I took away from that is I can't let mom and dad know that this happened. And so I never talked about it, but it sparked a curiosity in me. And so I'm carrying that as an eight-year-old. And even just thinking about that now, it's like, golly, what eight-year-old can carry that? And then in fifth grade, uh, and this is just something that I've recently just organized in my story, but one you know, strange fun fact about me is that in fifth grade, I had a friend of mine that was, that was choking during breakfast. And so I did the Heimlich maneuver on her, saved her life. Wow. Good for you. Yeah, it was cool. And, but, uh, I remember watching channel five news in St. Louis and they introed a story and, you know, it was supposed to air that night. You know, they had gone to school and interviewed us and stuff. And the newscaster said, uh, up next, a student sees a friend of his struggling, so he hits her. To the entire city of St. Louis, the the one the the most incredible thing that I have ever done in my life, as a little boy, you know, seeing Disney movies of how you need to be the hero and you know how that's the thing, uh, was completely misrepresented. Mm in that in one of the most embarrassing ways possible. And of course my brothers thought it was funny and stuff. And so I had that going on. And then, uh, there was also a sense of, uh, you know, the hero didn't get the girl afterwards Mm. because that for that girl that I saved, it caused her a lot of grief. And I also had a lot of people bully me about that at school afterwards. Wow. And so there was that foundational sense of, hiding of and feeling like I'm not enough. And even the most incredible thing that I had done in my life, I was 10 years old, wasn't good enough. And all it earned me right. was scorn and ridicule. And so I mentioned I was exposed to pornography when I was eight years old. When I was in seventh grade, I was re-exposed to it at a friend's house. And that started me uh, coping with pornography. And, uh, shortly after that, I I found some, found some magazines out in our garage and it was just off to the races. And so I would go to those as a, as a seventh grader, eighth grader and feeling like I'm not enough, feeling like I'm failing, feeling like nobody of the opposite sex wants anything to do with me. And so let me try and do everything. Let me run to this for a false sense of security. And in some ways, those magazines were my first romantic relationship. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I ran to those. Uh, I've, I've used food my entire life as a way to cope. And so I did that. I, I tried my performance and my grades in there. Right before high school, I found my group of friends that I, that I became friends with. And the way that I became friends with them... Uh, dating myself a little bit, but around that time, blue collar comedy tour was really big. And I bought a Jeff Fox for the album and I memorized those jokes. And I told them at the lunch table and people started thinking I was funny and they allowed me to hang out with them. Some of them just called me the fat kid for a couple weeks before they learned my name, but that was okay with me. They weren't calling me anything else. I wasn't already saying about myself. 
then I get into high school and I'm trying to do everything I can to be accepted. I, I actually found, uh, I started playing football and I really love that. I, you know, you know, played all four years. I was captain of the football team. My, one of the captains, my senior year, but, uh, you know, I look back on that and I go, eh, it wasn't because of my skill. It was because of my quote unquote character. And, uh, which again, just that shame message. I can't accept that I'm doing anything right. So let me ask you this yeah. question. I'm going to stop you real quick. So yeah. you mentioned you asked Christ into your life or God in your life when you yeah. were seven. So you're talking about all these messages that are coming to you and what you believed about yourself. And so let me ask you this, where was God in all of this? Yeah. I mean, I think I can look back on my life and I, I firmly believe that when I was eight years old, I, God had me. I prayed a lot as a kid. Uh, I knew God was with me, but I think I had a misunderstanding of who, what God's character actually was. People knew that I was a Christian, but my relationship with Jesus wasn't super mature. So let's move on to college. You got a yeah. high school, you go to college. <laughs> um, I mean, is that where did things start turning for you in college? I mean, what, did you still continue keeping the pornography a secret? I mean, is that something that you hid for a long period of time? Did you tell any friends about that or was that something that only Andy knew about? Yeah. So technically I majored in college and business and music, but I think I really majored in secrecy in college. Uh, so I went to college at a private Christian school in, uh, in Branson, Missouri, and it is a very conservative school that, uh, like if they would have heard that you were drinking, they would have kicked you out, mm. which was a problem for me because I started drinking at the end of high school and started partying, got into uh, just, I was an idiot, uh, ended up losing my virginity to some woman that I don't even know who she is. And so I walked in to a private Christian college. Again, I was the, I was the Christian kid. I was the good Christian kid in my group of friends. Uh, and so now I'm in a place where this is the mold I have to fit in. And I know there's things going on in my life. And so rather than fix the things going on in my life, let's hide them mm. so that I look the part. And so my first two years of college uh, were pretty rough. It was a it was an escalating addiction to pornography, and so I, I didn't know how to let anybody into that. Church had never been a safe place for me to talk about those things. And then uh, I started dating a girl, my, ver my first romantic relationship in college, and uh, her family hated me. And so we hid our relationship for two years from her family. And so a lot of, uh, a lot of guilt, a lot of shame a lot of hiding, incredibly unhealthy relationship. We finally ended it uh, right before my junior year uh, of college. And two, two things happened that were, it, it's just interesting looking at my story. I fell back really, really hard into drinking. And uh, my pornography addiction escalated. And I started getting plugged in at the Baptist Student Union. Wow, there's a, a contrast. <laughs> yep. So I it entered into a season 
of just living the weirdest double life, Eric. So the scriptures started to come alive. And I was also partying really hard. And I had a lot of pain from that relationship. Again, the first person that I felt like, oh my gosh, they see value in me. They love me. We, you know, and all of these promises that you make to each other and stuff. And then uh, that was that's ripped away. And so I started uh, a, a cycle of really hard pornography use, really hard alcohol and partying, and just jumping into a long string of really unhealthy relationships with a lot of sexual brokenness. Mm-hmm. And so that was the next two and a half years of my life uh, of, of those three things happening. And then realizing that I needed community, getting plugged in at the Baptist Student Union, getting plugged into uh, worship, playing, playing guitar and worship there, and, uh, and then starting to lead worship there. And so there was, uh, I, I think God used, uh, and it sounds weird to say this, and I wouldn't recommend that anybody else take this approach, but it feels like God used positions of influence and leadership that he pressed me into to force me to look at my life. And so by the time I finished college, I was the worship leader at the Baptist Student Union and realized that there was people looking up to me and there was a lot of cognitive dissonance in my life and I need, and something needed to change. I stayed in Branson for my, my first year out of college and couldn't find a job after college. Had the hardest time finding a job. So I was living in a trailer in Branson, Missouri, working full-time at Bass Pro Shops folding t-shirts for $8 an hour and leading worship at this Baptist Student Union at this little college that I went to. And that was one of the hardest, but also one of the richest times in my life where I really started leaning into what God says about me. And I grew like a weed in my faith. I started getting discipled. Uh, Jeremy Thomas in, in Branson, Missouri poured into me. And I'm so grateful for that guy's love and grace in my life. Uh, I started talking about my pornography addiction in very guarded ways. It was kind of that sense of, you know, I used to struggle with pornography. I've got a lot of shame about it. And uh, (laughs) I remember that was when I started taking steps, but I had no idea the tools to take or the tools to use. And so I remember walking into a a Christian bookstore in Branson, Missouri, down on the landing there. And I'm going, I'm going to buy a book on sexual addiction and it's going to fix me. And I went in there and there was a pretty girl behind the counter. And I'm like, well, that plans out the window. Let's look at the discount rack. I found a book on gambling and I bought that. Oh, wow. (laughs) Never read it. (laughs) I've still got the book and it still has the little stale sticker on it. Uh, (laughs) And, but that's where I was at. So I knew there was a problem. I knew I needed to fix it. I still felt like those shame messages told me that I still needed to hide it a whole lot uh, because I really loved leading worship. And if this came out, there's no way that they'd let me keep doing that. And so I, uh, I stopped drinking shortly after that. And, uh, and because I was a porn addict, 
I really just switched addictions fully over to that. But it was uh, it was cool just watching God meet me in that place when I was willing to surrender that part of my life to Him. Uh, it was it it was a sweet moment. So I was going to ask you: Is that yeah. when you felt a call to ministry? Did you feel like yeah. call at that point, or or what, where was the aha moment there? Yeah. So uh, probably about two months before I quit drinking, and I found myself uh, running sound at the chapel service at the college that I went to because they were paying me fifty bucks to be there, not because I liked being in there, not because I liked the guy that was preaching that morning but because they were paying me. And as he was giving his sermon, I don't remember much about it, but I remember he shared on Galatians chapter two, verse 20, which says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And I heard him say, he, you've been crucified with Christ. You don't live. The life that we now live, it's a life lived by faith in Jesus, not faith in ourselves. And so are you trust, man. So are you trusting your plan for your life or are you trusting God's plan for your life? And man, even just talking about it brings me right back there. And dude, I'm surprised that that soundboard still worked after I got done because I was crying all over it, man. And there was a moment there that day, man, where I said, God, I don't know where you're leading me, but if you open the door, I will walk through it. But you got to open the door. And so, Lord, I don't know where you're leading me. You're giving me a lot of opportunities to do ministry stuff. I don't understand that because I'm not the guy. But if you open the door, I'll do it. And so I felt like he was opening doors. Uh, my first college pastor became a uh, worship leader at Fellowship Bible Church in Rogers, Arkansas. And so he left my second semester of my junior year to do that. I didn't know that he was going to a church that had an internship program for people that w were trying to figure out if full-time ministry was for them. So I put an application in three weeks, no, two weeks before the residency started. I got a call from Jimmy that said, Hey man, just cause I wanted a worship residency. And he, he said, Hey man, we were not able to figure out what that looks like this year. And I'm like, Oh, that's all right, man. You know? And, and he goes, wait, 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 wait. We still want you to do the residency. We just have no idea where we're going to put you. And I said, awesome, I'll be there. I packed up everything I owned and I drove down to Rogers, Arkansas to do this residency in a place I'd never really been at a church I didn't know a lot about in a journey that I didn't choose uh, and was just stepping out in faith. And I am not that far removed from being a complete idiot. And I've still got this pornography addiction that I don't know what to do with and Man, I feel like my name is a cuss word to some people in Branson, and I let's see what happens, but let's do my best just to stay hidden and do what I can. And when I got to fellowship the first week, they put us in this class called Life's Healing Choices, 
with a guy named Rodney Holmstrom that was leading it. And I remember sitting in that class going, I don't know what to expect. And Rodney said, hey, we know that every single one of you sitting in this room right now, you're a broken person in a broken world. And we know you've got stuff and it's okay. It's okay to not be okay. Mm. So let's walk through it together. First time in my life I had ever heard a church leader say something like that. And that was the start of me starting to go, okay, maybe I can look at the things in my life. So tell me when those two roads met. You've got this call to ministry. I'm, I'm, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to do this. Your relationship's good. And then you've got this porn addiction over here, a little bit of a secret thing going on. You heard a minister tell you that it's okay to not be okay. So at what point did those two things meet? And you started saying, I need to expose these secrets. I need to, I need to expose my hidden life to the light. Yeah. I was almost there. I, I just worked as hard as I could and uh, was trying to fight it on my own. And then I, uh, around December, my, so Brian Pope, my supervisor, he came to me and said, hey, uh, there's this part-time position that has opened up with this thing called The Landing, which is Celebrate Recovery Student Ministry here. And I... I think you'd be a good fit for it. Rodney wants to talk to you about it. And I thought, cool, <laughs> great. Uh, I went and I interviewed with Rodney. I don't even remember a whole lot of the interview, but I, uh, I know like I was, I was interested in that and I wanted, like, I loved, I loved what Celebrate Recovery was about, thought it could be great for me. And I was thinking, man, this would be a really great thing. And Maybe if I'm around it enough, it'll just kind of fix me by proximity. And uh, I got the job in January 17th of 2015, eight and a half years ago. I stepped into that role and a couple of weeks into it, I'm sitting in my new office over in the Celebrate Recovery offices now on the Rogers campus uh, of Fellowship Bible Church. And uh, Rodney knocked on my door and he said, hey, man. I'm starting a step study here in a couple weeks, which is a, a small group with Celebrate Recovery. I'm going to lead it. I think it'd be a great idea if you joined. And I was smart enough to know that that wasn't really a request. That was a, hey, if you're on staff now, you need to do this. And I j said, all right, let's do it. And in the back of my mind, I'm like, oh, man, I'm going to get fired uh, and so the step study started and I can remember the first day, you know, in celebrate recovery, we do our introduction, starting off a, a group like that. And I'm just like, man, what am I going to say for my intro? What am I going to say for my intro and stuff? And I couldn't say pornography addiction. And so I said lust and I was like, ah, oh, man, Rodney's going to look at me sideways and they just go, Hey Andy. And they went to the next person. I'm like, all right, whew, okay. I'm still here. And I remember I, you know, I answered a question that day and, uh, you know, afterwards Rodney pulled me aside and, you know, you know, what'd you think about that? And then he looks at me, he goes, Hey man, I want you to know this is a safe place for you too. 
You can be honest. He saw right through me. And I said, okay. God, it looks like you're opening a door. I'm going to step through it. (laughs) And Eric, that group changed my life. That was where I learned to be honest. And I heard guys that said that they struggled with pornography for 20 years. And now they were, at that point, they were nine years sober. And I thought, that's a lie. (laughs) But it wasn't. And so I started being honest. I started bringing it out into the light and it changed everything. I realized that I really am as sick as my secrets. And I realized how good it was to not have any secrets anymore. Mm. All of the things I swore I'd take to my grave, I shared in that group. And it took me a little bit. My road to freedom was was hard. There were some setbacks, but I actually started finding traction and sobriety in my pornography addiction. I learned the reasons why I ran to it. Man, it just just changed everything. That's so powerful, Andy. So how did you meet your wife and how did the conversation go? I mean, you've been holding all these things secrets. Now you've exposed it. Now you've met uh, a relationship. You've got a relationship with a girl. Are you, did you come clean with uh, all of that stuff right yeah. up front, or how'd that go? So, uh, yeah, my wife Julia, first off, is totally incredible. I completely outkicked my coverage with her. <laughs> She's awesome. I, I'm so grateful for her. So, uh, you know, one thing I'll say, Eric, is one thing I've learned in recovery is that uh, my deepest, darkest secrets have become my greatest opportunity for connection with others. Mm. And I've watched God use that in some incredible ways, and he absolutely did that with Julia. So Julia, I mentioned I came in working with the college ministry. Julia was a college student. Uh, She was a junior or a senior. I think she was a junior when I met her. And then I I stepped into my role with the landing, and I needed a sound person to help us with worship. And Julia was running sound for the college ministry. And so I roped her in to helping out. And then she became a small group leader in there. And so we served together in the landing for two years. And before we started dating, she actually started jumping into a step study. And over the course of time, she had heard my testimony. She had seen my change happen. And so she knew my story in there, which was really cool. But yet, jumping into a relationship, we started dating in 2017 was when we started dating. And, uh, you know, there was, uh, there was a lot of vulnerability in our relationship from the get-go, which scared, it just scared the tar out of me, man. Because whenever I had been open in relationships before, that's when the relationship ended. We've got two kids. Uh, I've got a a 14-month-old son uh, named Hudson and a -a two-and-a-half-year-old daughter named Harper. And so becoming parents in the middle of a pandemic was real dumb, but uh, (laughs) the Lord used it. Uh, And really grateful for that. Uh, 
uh, God has given me so many tools to deal with life on life's terms mm. that when COVID happened, I didn't relapse. That when uh, I'm sleep deprived with a tiny baby in a crib screaming at me and I'm throwing a pacifier across the room at three in the morning, I'm, I'm angry and I'm able to say, I'm angry, Lord, what is happening? Not I'm angry, let me go check out emotionally. And, uh, and my wife and I are in it together, and she's one of my greatest supporters in the middle of this, which I know is so rare. Amen, brother. Well, I've got one last question for you. Okay. So we've got listeners that are listening. So what would you tell a listener who is hiding something in their life? What would you recommend to them, and what's the first step if they want change in their life? You know, it's funny. What's coming to mind is actually something I heard you say a couple weeks ago, Eric, but... Uh, concealment always costs more than confession. Uh, that's so true. I really am only as sick as my secrets. And the very thing that you don't want to tell somebody is the very weight that is holding you down. And it's the key to starting to find freedom. Shame cannot live in the light. Just step out into it. Give radical honesty a chance. Just give it a chance and see what happens. Andy, thanks so much for sharing your story with us and being so transparent. I want to leave us with one last quote from Jean Racine. There are no secrets that time does not reveal. In Luke 8, 27, it says, For all that is secret will eventually be brought into the open. And everything that is concealed will be brought to light and made known to all. Daniel 2.22 says, He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells within him. Hey, if you are listening today and you have secrets that are eating you alive from the inside out, there is hope and healing in exposing those secrets and coming clean before Jesus Christ our Lord. A friend of mine says, there is healing in the revealing. If you are stuck in the present because of the secrets of your past, maybe it's time for change. But if nothing changes, nothing changes. See you next time.